Part two, chapter five of the House of the Dead by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translator unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter five, the summer season. April is come. Holy Week is not far off. We set about our summer tasks. The sun becomes hotter and more brilliant every day. The atmosphere has the spring in it and acts upon our nervous system powerfully. The convict in his chains feels the trembling influence of the lovely days like any other creature. They rouse desires in him, inexpressible longings for his home, and many other things. I think that he misses his liberty, yearns for freedom, more when the day is filled with sunlight than during the rainy and melancholy days of autumn and winter. You may observe this positively among convicts. If they do feel a little joy on a beautiful clear day, they have a reaction into greater impatience and irritability. I noticed that in spring there was much more squabbling in our prison. There was more noise, the yelling was greater, there were more fights. During the working hours we would see a man sometimes fixed in a meditative gaze, which seemed lost in the blue distance somewhere, the other side of the Irtich, where stretched the boundless plain with its flight of hundreds of verse, the free Kyrgyz steppe. Long-drawn sighs came to one's ear, sighs breathed from the depths of the chest. It might seem that the air of those wide and free regions, haunted by their thought, forced the convicts to draw deep respirations, and was a sort of solace to their crushed and fettered souls. Ah! cries at last the poor prisoner all at once, with a long sighing cry. Then he seizes his pick furiously, or picks up the bricks which he has to carry from one place to another but after a brief minute he seems to forget the passing impression, and begins laughing or insulting people near, so fitful is his humour. Then he attacks the work he has to do with unusual fire, labours with might and main, as if trying to stifle by fatigue the grief that has him by the throat. You see, they are fellows of unimpaired vigour, all in the very flower of life, with all their physical and other strength about them. How heavy the irons are during this season! All this is not sentimentality, it is the report of rigorous observation. During the hot season, under a fiery sun, when all one's being, all one's soul, is vividly conscious of and intimately feels the unspeakably strong resurrection of nature going on everywhere, it is more difficult to support the confinement, the perpetual surveillance, the tyranny of a will other than one's own. Besides this, it is in spring, with the first song of the lark, that throughout all Siberia and Russia men set out on the tramp. God's creatures, if they can, break their prison and escape into the woods. After the stifling ditch where they work, after the boats, the irons, the rods and whips, they go vagabondizing where they please, wherever they can make it out best. They eat and drink what they can get. Tis all the time potluck with them and by night they sleep undisturbed in the woods or in a field, without a care, without the agony of knowing themselves in prison, as if they were God's own birds. Their good night is said to the stars, and the eye that watches them is the eye of God. Not altogether a rosy life by any means, sometimes hunger and fatigue are heavy on them in the service of General Cuckoo. Often enough the wanderers have not a morsel of bread to keep their teeth going for days and days. They have to hide from everybody, run to earth like marmots. Sometimes they are driven to robbery, pillage, nay, even murder. 
Send a man there and he becomes a child and just throws himself on all he sees. That is what people say of those transported to Siberia. This saying may be applied even more fitly to the tramps. They are almost all brigands and thieves, by necessity rather than inclination. Many of them are hardened to the life, irreclaimable. There are convicts who go off after having served their time, even after they have been put on some land as their own. They ought to be happy in their new state, with their daily bread assured them. Well, it is not so. An irresistible impulse sends them wandering off. This life in the woods, wretched and fearful as it is, but still free and adventurous, has a mysterious seduction for those who have experienced it. Among these fugitives you may find to your surprise people of good habit of mind, peaceable temper, who had shown every promise of becoming settled creatures, good tillers of the land. A convict will marry, have children, live for five years in the same place, then all of a sudden he will disappear one fine morning, abandoning wife and children, to the stupefaction of his family and the whole neighborhood. One day I was shown at the convict establishment, one of these deserters of the family hearthstone. He had committed no crime, at least he was under suspicion of none, but all through his life he had been a deserter, a deserter from every post. He had been to the southern frontier of the empire, the other side of the Danube, in the Kyrgyz steppe, in eastern Siberia, the Caucasus, in a word, everywhere. Who knows, under other conditions this man might have been a Robinson Crusoe, with a passion of travel so on him. These details I have from other convicts, for he did not like talk, and never opened his mouth except when absolutely necessary. He was a peasant of quite small size, of some fifty years, very quiet in demeanour, with a face so still as to seem quite without any sort of meaning, impassive almost to idiocy. His delight was to sit for hours in the sun, humming a sort of song between his teeth so softly that five steps off he was inaudible his features were so to speak petrified he ate little principally black bread he never bought white bread or spirits my belief is he never had had any money and that he couldn't have counted it if he had he was indifferent to everything sometimes he fed the prison dogs with his own hand a thing no one else was known to do speaking generally russians don't like giving dogs things to eat from the hand People said that he had been married, twice even, and that he had children somewhere. Why he had been sent as a convict, I have not the least idea. We fellows were always fancying that he would escape, but his hour did not come, or perhaps had come and gone. Anyhow, he went through with his punishment without resistance. He seemed an element quite foreign to the medium wherein he had his being, an alien, self-concentrated creature. Still, there was nothing in this deep surface calm which could be trusted. Yet, after all, what good would it have been to him to escape from the place? Compared with life at the convict prison, the vagabondage of the forest is as the joys of paradise. The tramp's lot is wretched enough, but at least free. So it is that every prisoner all over the soil of Russia becomes restless with the first rays of the smiling spring. Comparatively few form any settled plan for flight. They fear the hindrances in the way and the punishment that may ensue. Only one in a hundred, not more, make up his mind to it. But how to do it is a thought that never ceases to haunt the minds of the ninety-nine others. Filled as they are with this longing, anything that looks like giving a chance of success is a comfort to them. Then they set about comparing the facts with cases of successful escape. 
I speak only of prisoners after and under sentence, for prisoners not yet tried and condemned are much more ready to try at an escape, and those who have been sentenced rarely get away unless they attempt it in early days. When they have spent two or three years of their time, they put them to a sort of credit account in their minds, and conclude that it is better to finish with the law and be put on land as a free man, rather than forfeit that time if they fail in escaping, which is always a possibility. Certainly not more than one convict in ten succeeds in changing his lot. Those who do are nearly always men sentenced to an extremely long punishment, or for life. Fifteen, twenty years seems like an eternity to them. Then there is the branding, which is a great difficulty in the way of complete escape. Changing your lot is a technical expression. When a convict is caught trying to escape, he is subjected to formal interrogatory and will say he wanted to change his lot. This somewhat literary formula exactly represents the act in question. No escaped prisoner ever hopes to become a perfectly free man, for he knows that it is nearly impossible. What he looks for is to be sent to some other convict establishment or to be put on the land, or to be tried again for some offence committed when on the tramp. In a word, to be sent anywhere else, it matters not where, so that he get out of his present prison, which has become insufferable to him. All these fugitives, unless they find some unexpected shelter for the winter, unless they meet someone interested in concealing them, or if, last resort, they cannot procure, and sometimes a murder does it, the legal document which enables them to go about unmolested everywhere all these fugitives present themselves in crowds during the autumn in the towns and at the prisons they confess themselves to be escaped tramps pass the winter in jail and live in the secret hope of getting away the following summer on me as well as others the spring exercised its influence well do i remember the avidity with which my gaze fed upon the horizon through the gaps in the palisades Long, long did I stand with my head glued to the pickets, obstinately and insatiably gazing on the grass greening in the ditch surrounding the fortress, and at the blue of the distant sky as it grew denser and denser. My anguish, my melancholy were heavier on me. As each day wore away, the jail became odious, detestable. Hatred for me, as a man of the nobility, filled the hearts of the convicts during these first years and this feeling of theirs simply poisoned my life for me. Often did I ask to be sent to the hospital when there was no need of it, merely to be out of the punishment part of the place, to feel myself out of the range of this unrelenting and implacable hostility. You nobles have beaks of iron, and you tore us to pieces with your beaks when we were serfs, is what the convicts used to say to us. How I envied the people of the lower class who came into the place as prisoners. It was different with them, they were in comradeship with all there from the very first moment. So was it that in the spring, freedom showing herself as a sort of phantom of the season, the joy diffused throughout all nature, translated themselves within my soul into a more than doubled melancholy and nervous irritability. As the sixth week of Lent came, I had to go through my religious exercises, for the convicts were divided by the sub-superintendent into seven sections, answering to the weeks in lent and these had to attend to their devotions according to this roster each section was composed of about thirty men this week was a great solace to me we went two or three times a day to the church which was close to the prison i had not been in church for a long time 
the lenten services familiar to me from early childhood in my father's house the solemn prayers the prostrations all stirred in me the fibres of the memory of things long long past and woke my earliest impressions to fresh life well do i remember how happy i was when at morn we went into god's house treading the ground which had frozen in the night under the escort of soldiers with loaded guns the escort remained outside the church once within we were massed close to the door so that we could scarcely hear anything except the deep voice of the ministering deacon now and again we caught a glimpse of a black chasubel or the bare head of the priest then it came into my mind how when a child i used to look at the common people who formed a compact mass at the door and how they would step back in a servile way before some important epauletted fellow or some nobleman with a big paunch some lady splendidly dressed and of high devotion who in a hurry to get at the front benches and ready for a row if there was any difficulty as to their being honoured with the best of places as it seemed to me then it was only there near the church door not far from the entry that prayer was put up with genuine fervour and humility only there that when people did prostrate themselves on the floor it was done with real abasement of self and full sense of unworthiness and now i myself was in that place of the common people no not in their place for we who were there were in chains and degradation everybody kept themselves at a distance from us we were feared and alms were put in our hands as if we were beggars i remember that all this gave me the strange sensation of a refined and subtle pleasure let it even be so such was my thought the convicts prayed with deep fervour every one of them had with him his poor farthing for a little candle or for their collection for the church expenses i too i am a man each one of them perhaps said as he made his offering before god we are all equal after the six o'clock mass we went up to communion when the priest sephorium in hand recited the words have mercy on me as thou hadst on the thief whom thou didst save nearly all the convicts prostrated themselves and their chains clanked i think they took these words literally as applied to themselves and not as being in scripture holy week came the authorities presented each of us with an easter egg and a small piece of wheaten bread the townspeople loaded us with benevolences as at christmas there was the priest's visitation with the cross inspecting visit of the heads of departments larded cabbage general enlargement of soul and unlimited lounging the only difference being that one could now walk about in the courtyard and warm oneself in the sun everything seemed filled with more light larger than in the winter but also more fraught with sadness the long endless summer days seemed peculiarly unbearable on church holidays workdays were at least shortened to our sense by the fatigue of work our summer labours were much more trying than the winter tasks our business was principally that of carrying out engineering works the convicts were set to building digging bricklaying or repairing government buildings locksmith's work or carpentering or painting others went into the brickfields and that was looked upon by us as the hardest of all we had laid on us the brickfields were situated about four versts from the fortress through all the summer they sent there every morning at six o'clock a gang of fifty convicts for this gang they used to pick out workmen who had learned no trade in particular the convicts took with them their bread for the day the distance was too great for them to come back 
eight useless verse for dinner with the others, so they had a meal when they returned in the evening. Work was assigned to each for the day, but there was so much of it that it was all a man could do, nay, more, to get to the end of it. First we had to dig and carry the clay, moisten it, and mould it in the ditch, and then make a goodly quantity of bricks, two hundred or so, sometimes fifty more than that. I was only twice sent to the brickfield. The convicts sent to this labour came back in the evening dead tired, and every one of them complained of the others, that he had had the worst of the work put on him. I believe that reproaches of this kind were a pleasure, a consolation to them. Some of them, however, liked the brickfield work, because they got away from the town, and to the banks of the Irtich, into open, agreeable country, with the sky overhead. Their surroundings were more agreeable than those frightful government buildings. They were allowed to smoke there in all freedom, and to remain lying down for half an hour or so, which was a great pleasure. As for me, I was sent to one of the shops, or else to pound up alabaster, or to carry bricks, which last job I had for two months together. I had to take my tail of bricks from the banks of the Irtich to a distance of about 140 yards, and to pass the ditch of the fortress before getting to the barrack which they were putting up. This work suited me well enough, although the cord with which I carried my bricks sawed my shoulders. What particularly pleased me was that my strength increased sensibly. At the outset I could not carry more than eight bricks at once. Each of them weighed about twelve pounds. I got to be able to carry twelve or even fifteen, which delighted me much. You wanted physical as well as moral strength to be able to bear all the discomforts of that accursed life. There was this, too. I wanted, when I left the place, really to live, not to be half dead. I took pleasure in carrying my bricks then. It was not merely that this labor strengthened my body, but because it took me always to the banks of the Irtich. I speak often of this spot. It was the only one where we saw God's own world, a pure and bright horizon, the free desert steppes, whose bareness always produced a strange impression on me. All the other workyards were in the fortress itself or in its neighborhood, and the fortress, from the earliest days I was there, was the object of my hatred, and above all its appurtenant buildings. The house of the major commandant seemed to me a repulsive, accursed place. I never could pass it without casting upon it a look of detestation, while at the river bank I could forget my miserable self as I sent my gaze over the immense desert space, just as a prisoner may when he looks at the world of freedom through the barred casement of his dungeon. Everything in that place was dear and gracious to my eyes, the sun shining in the infinite blue of heaven, the distant song of the Kyrgyz that came from the opposite bank. Sometimes I would fix my sight for a long while upon the poor smoky cabin of some baiguch. I would study the bluish smoke as it curled in the air, the Kyrgyz woman busy with her two sheep. The things I saw were wild, savage, poverty-stricken, but they were free. I would follow the flight of a bird threading its way in the pure transparent air. Now it skims the water, now disappears in the azure sky, now suddenly comes to view again a mere point in space. Even the poor wee floweret, fading in a cleft of the bank, which would show itself when spring began, fixed my attention and would draw my tears. The melancholy of this first year of convict life and hard labor was unendurable, too much for my strength. The anguish of it was so great, I could not notice my immediate surroundings at all. I merely shut my eyes and would not see. 
among the creatures with spoiled lives with whom i had to live i did not yet note those who were capable of thinking and feeling in spite of their external repulsiveness there came not to my ears or if there did i knew it not one word of kindliness in the midst of the rain of poisonous talk that came down all the time still one such utterance there was simple straightforward of pure motive and it came from the heart of a man who had suffered and endured more than myself but it is useless to enlarge on this the great fatigue i underwent was a source of satisfaction it gave me hope of sound sleep during the summer sleep was torment more intolerable than the closeness and infection winter brought with it some of the nights were certainly very beautiful the sun which had not ceased to inundate the courtyard all the day hid itself at last the air freshened and the night the night of the steppe became comparatively cold the convicts until shut up in their barracks walked about in groups especially on the kitchen side for that was the place where questions of general interest were by preference discussed and comments were made upon the rumours from without often absurd indeed but always keenly exciting to these men cut off from the world for example we suddenly learned that our major had been roughly dismissed from his post convicts are as credulous as children they know the news to be false or most unlikely and that the fellow who brings it is a past master in the art of lying kvasov for all that they clutch at the nonsensical story go into high delight over it are much consoled and at last quite ashamed to have been duped by a kvasov i should like to know who'll show him the door cries one convict don't you fear he's a fellow who knows how to stick on but says another he has his superiors over him this one is a warm controversialist and has seen the world wolves don't feed on one another says a third gloomily half to himself this one is an old fellow growing grey and he always takes his sour cabbage soup into a corner and eats it there do you think his superiors would take your advice whether they shall show him the door or not adds a fourth who doesn't seem to care about it at all giving a stroke to his balalaika well why not replies the second angrily if you are asked answer what's in your mind but no with us fellows it's all mere cry and when you ought to go at things with a will everybody sneaks out that's so says the one playing with the balalaika hard labour and prison are just the things to cause that it was like that the other day says the second one without hearing the remark made to him there was a little wheat left sweepings a mere nothing there was some idea of turning the refuse into money well look here they took it to him and he confiscated it all economy you see was that so and was it right yes or no but whom can you complain to to whom why the spectre who's coming what spectre it's true pals a spectre is coming soon said a youthful convict who had got some sort of knowledge had read the duchesse de la valliere or some book of that sort and who had been quartermaster in a regiment a bit of a wag whom as a man of information the convicts held in a sort of respect without paying the least attention to the exciting debate he goes straight to the cook and asks him for some liver our cooks often deal in victuals of that kind they used to buy a whole liver cut it in pieces and sell it to the other convicts two kopecks worth or four asked cook a four kopeck cut i'll eat the others shall look on and long says this convict yes pals a general a real general is coming from petersburg to spect all siberia it's so heard it at the governor's place this news produces an extraordinary effect 
For a quarter of an hour they ask each other who this general can be, what's his title, whether his grade is higher than that of the generals of our town. The convicts delight in discussing ranks and degrees, in finding out who's at the head of things, who can make the other officials crook their backs, and to whom he crooks his own. So they get up an argument and quarrel about their generals, and rude words fly about, all in honour of these high officers. Fights, too, sometimes. What interest can they possibly have in it? When one hears convicts speaking of generals and high officials, one gets a measure of their intelligence as they were while still in the world before the prison days. It cannot be concealed that among our people, even in much higher circles, talk about generals and high officials is looked upon as the most serious and refined conversation. Well, you see, they have sent our major to the right about, don't you? observes Kvasov, a little rubicund, choleric, small-brained fellow the same who had announced the supersession of the major. We'll just grease their palm for them, this in staccato tones from the morose old fellow in the corner, who had finished his sour cabbage soup. I should think he would grease their palms, by Jove, says another. He's stolen money enough, the brigand, and only think he was only a regimental major before he came here. He's feathered his nest. Why, a little while ago he was engaged to the head priest's daughter." but he didn't get married they turned him off and that shows he's poor a pretty sort of fellow to get engaged he's got nothing but the coat on his back last year easter time he lost all he had at cards fedka told me so well well pals i've been married myself but it's a bad thing for a poor devil taking a wife is soon done but the fun of it is more like an inch than a mile observed skuratov who had just joined in the general talk do you fancy we're going to amuse ourselves by discussing you? says the ex-quartermaster in a superior manner. Kvasov, I tell you you're a big idiot. If you fancy that the major can grease the palm of an inspector general, you've got things finely muddled. Do you fancy they send a man from Petersburg just to inspect your major? You're a precious dolt, my lad. Take it from me that it is so. And you fancy because he's a general he doesn't take what's offered? said someone in the crowd in a sceptical tone. I should think he did indeed, and plenty of it whenever he can. A dead sure thing, that, gets bigger and more and worse the higher the rank. A general always has his palm grease, says Kvasov sententiously. Did you ever give them money, as you're so sure of it? asks Bakluchin, suddenly striking in in a tone of contempt. Come now, did you ever see a general in all your life? Yes. Liar. Liar yourself. Well, boys, as he has seen a general, let him say which. Come, quick about it. I know em all, every man jack. I've seen General Zebert, says Kvasov in tones far from sure. Zebert? There's no general of that name. That's the general, perhaps, who was looking at your back when they gave you the cat. This Zebert was perhaps a lieutenant colonel. But you were in such a fright just then you took him for a general. No, just hear me, cries Skuratov, for I've got a wife. There was really a general of that name, a German, but a Russian subject. He confessed to the Pope every year all about his peccadillos with gay women, and drank water like a duck, at least forty glasses of Moskva water one after the other. That was the way he got cured of some disease. I had it from his valet. I say, and the carp didn't swim in his belly? This from the convict with the balalaika. Be quiet, fellows, can't you? One's talking seriously, and there they are, beginning their nonsense again. Who's the spectre that's coming? This was put by a convict who always seemed full of business, Martinov, an old man who had been in the hussars. Set of lying fellows, said one of the doubters. 
Lord knows where they get it all from. It's all empty talk. It's nothing of the sort, observes Kulikov, majestically silent hitherto, in dogmatic tones. The man coming is big and fat, about fifty years, with regular features and proud, contemptuous manners, on which he prides himself. Kulikov is a tsigan, a sort of veterinary surgeon, makes money by treating horses in town, and sells wine in our prison. He's no fool, plenty of brain, memory well stocked, lets his words fall as carefully as if every one of them was worth a rouble. It's true, he went on very calmly. I heard of it only last week. It's a general with bigger epaulettes than most, and he's going to inspect all Siberia. They grease his poem well for him, that's sure enough. But not our major with his eight eyes in his head. He won't dare to creep in about him. For you see, pals, there are generals and generals, as there are faggots and faggots. It's just this, and you may take it from me. Our major will remain where he is. We're fellows with no tongue. We've no right to speak. And as to our chiefs here, they're not going to say a word against him. The spectre will come into our jail, give a look round, and go off at once. He'll say it was all right. Yes, but the major's in a fright. He's been drunk since morning. And this evening he had two van loads of things taken away. Fedka says so. You may scrub a nigger, he'll never be white. Is it the first time you've seen him drunk, hey? No, it will be a devil of a shame if the general does nothing to him, said the convicts, who began to get highly excited. The news of the arrival of the inspector went through the prison. The prisoners went everywhere about the courtyard, retailing the important fact. Some held their tongues and kept cool, trying to look important. Some were really indifferent to it. Some of the convicts sat down on the steps of the doors to play the balalaika, while some went on with their gossip. Some groups were singing in a drawling voice but the whole courtyard was upset and excited generally. About nine o'clock they counted us and quartered us in our barracks, which were closed for the night. A short summer night it was, so we were roused up at five o'clock in the morning, yet nobody had managed to sleep before eleven, for up to that hour there was conversation and all sort of movement was going on. Sometimes, too, games of cards were made up as in winter. The heat was intolerable, stifling. True, the open window let in some of the cool night air, but the convicts kept tossing themselves on their wooden beds as if delirious. Fleas, countless. There were enough of them in winter, but when spring came they multiplied in proportions so formidable that I couldn't believe it before I had to endure them. And as the summer went on, the worse it was with them. I found out that one could get used to fleas, but for all that the torment of them is so great that it throws you into a fever. Even when you get slumber, you quite feel it is not sleep. You are half delirious and know it. At last, towards morning, when the enemy is tired and you are deliciously asleep in the freshness of the early hours, suddenly sounds the pitiless morning drum call. How you curse as you hear them, those sharp, quick strokes. You cower in your semi-police, and then, you can't help it, comes the thought that it will be so tomorrow, the day after, for many, many years, till you are set at liberty. When will it come, this freedom, freedom? Where is it in this world? Where is it hiding? You have to get up. They are walking about you in all directions. The usual noisy row begins. The convicts dress and hurry to their work. It's true you have an hour you can spend in sleep at noon. What we had been told about the inspector was really true. The reports were more confirmed every day, and at last it became certain that a general, high in office, was coming from Petersburg, to inspect all Siberia, that
that he was already at tobolsk every day we learned something fresh about it these rumours came from the town they told us that there was alarm in all quarters and that everybody was making preparations to show himself in as favourable a light as might be the authorities were organizing receptions balls fetes of every kind gangs of convicts were sent to level the ways in the fortress smooth away hummocks in the ground paint the palings and other woodwork to plaster do up and generally repair everything that was conspicuous our prisoners perfectly well understood the object of this labor and their discussions became all the more animated and excited their imaginations passed all bounds they even set about formulating some demands to be set before the general on his arrival but that did not prevent their going on with their quarrels and violent speeches our major was on hot coals he came continually to visit the jail shouted and threw himself angrily on the fellows more than usual sent them to the guard-room in punishment for a mere nothing and watched very severely over the cleanliness and good order of the barracks just then there occurred a little event which did not at all painfully affect this officer as one might have expected but on the contrary caused him a lively satisfaction one of the convicts struck another with an awl right in the chest in a place quite near the heart the delinquent's name was lomov the name the victim was known by in the jail was gavrilka he was one of those seasoned tramps i've spoken about earlier whether he had any other name i don't know i never heard any attributed to him except that one gavrilka lomov had been a peasant comfortably off in the government of t and district of k there were five of them living together two brothers lomov and three sons they were quite rich peasants the talk throughout the district was that they had more than three hundred thousand roubles in paper money they worked at currying and tanning but their chief business was usury harbouring tramps and receiving stolen goods all sorts of petty irregular things half the peasants of their district owed them money and so were in their clutches they passed for being intelligent and full of cunning and gave themselves very great airs a great personage of their province had stopped on his way once at the father lomov's house and this official had taken a fancy to him because of his hardy and unscrupulous talk then they took it in their heads they might do exactly as they pleased and mixed themselves up more and more with illegal doings everybody had a grievance against them and would have liked to have seen them a hundred feet under the ground but they got bolder and bolder every day they were not afraid of the local police or the district tribunals at last fortune betrayed them their ruin came not out of their secret crimes but from an accusation which was all calumny and falsehood ten versts from their hamlet they had a farm where six kirghiz laborers long since brought down by them to be no better than slaves used to pass the autumn one fine day these kirghiz were found murdered an inquiry was set on foot that lasted long thanks to which no end of atrocious things were brought to light the lomovs were accused of having assassinated their workmen they had themselves told their story to the convicts all the jail knew it perfectly they were suspected of owing a great deal of money to the kirghiz and as they were full of greed and avarice in spite of their large fortunes it was believed they had paid the debt by taking the lives of the poor fellows while the inquiry and trial went on their property melted away utterly the father died the sons were transported one of these with the uncle was condemned to fifteen years of hard labor now they were perfectly innocent of the crime imputed to them one fine day gavrilka a thorough-paced rascal known as a tramp but of very gay and lively turn 
avowed himself the author of the crime as a matter of fact i don't know whether he actually made this avowal himself but what is sure is that the convicts held him to be the murderer of the kirghiz this gavrilka while still tramping about had been mixed up in some way with the lomovs his confinement in one jail was for quite a short sentence for desertion from the army and tramping he had cut the throats of the kirghiz three other marauding fellows had been in it with him in the hope of setting themselves up a bit with the plunder of the farm the lomovs were no favourites with ours i really don't know why one of them the nephew was a sturdy fellow intelligent and sociable but his uncle the one that struck gavrilka with the awl was a choleric stupid rustic always quarrelling with the convicts who knocked him about like plaster all the jail liked gavrilka for his gaiety and good humour the lomovs got to know like the rest that he was the man who committed the crime they were condemned for but they never got into any quarrel with him gavrilka paid no attention whatever to them the row with uncle lomov began about some disgusting girl they had quarrelled over gavrilka had boasted of the favour she had shown him the peasant mad with jealousy ended by driving an awl into his chest although the lomovs had been ruined by their trial and sentence they passed in the jail for being very rich they had money a samovar and drank tea our major knew all about it and hated the two lomovs sparing them no vexation the victims of his hate explained it by a desire to have them grease his palm well but they could not or would not bring themselves to do it if uncle lomov had struck his all one hair's breadth further in gavrilka's breast he would certainly have killed him as it was the wound did not much signify the affair was reported to the major i think i see him now as he came up out of breath but with visible satisfaction he addressed gavrilka in an affable fatherly way tell me lad can you walk to the hospital or must they carry you there no i think it will be better to have a horse let them put a horse to this moment he cried out to the sub-officer with a gasp but i don't feel it at all your worship he's only given me a bit of a prick your worship you don't know my dear fellow you don't know you'll see nasty place he's struck you in all depends upon the place he has given it you just below the heart the scoundrel wait wait he howled to lomov i've got you tight take him to the guardhouse he kept his promise lomov was tried and though the wound was slight there was plainly malice aforethought his sentence of hard labour was extended for several years and they gave him a thousand strokes with the rod the major was delighted the inspector arrived at last the day after he reached the town he came to the convict establishment to make his inspection it was a regular fete day for some days everything had been brilliantly lit washed with great precision the convicts were all just shaven their linen quite white and without a stain according to the regulations they wore in summer waistcoats and pantaloons of canvas every one had a round black piece sewn in at the back eight centimetres in diameter for a whole hour the prisoner had been drilled as to what they should answer the very words to be used particularly if the high functionary should take any notice of them there had been even regular rehearsals the major seemed to have lost his head an hour before the coming in of the inspector all the convicts were at their posts as stiff as statues with their little fingers on the seams of their pantaloons at last just about one o'clock the inspector made his entry he was a general with a most self-sufficing bearing so much so that the mere sight of it must have sent a tremor into the hearts of all the officials of west siberia he came in with a stern and majestic air 
followed by a crowd of generals and colonels doing service in our town there was a civilian too of high stature and regular features in frock coat and shoes this personage bore himself very independently and airily and the general addressed him every moment with exquisite politeness this civilian also had come from petersburg all the convicts were terribly curious as to who he could be such an important general showing him such deference we learned who he was and what his office later but he was a good deal talked about before we knew our major all spick and span with orange-coloured collar made no too favourable impression upon the general the bloodshot eyes and fiery rubicund complexion plainly told their own story out of respect for his superior he had taken off his spectacles and stood some way off as straight as a dart in feverish expectation that something would be asked of him that he might run and carry out his excellency's wishes but no particular need of his services seemed to be felt the general went all through the barracks without saying a word threw a glance into the kitchen where he tasted the sour cabbage soup they pointed me out to him telling him that i was an ex-nobleman who had done this that and the other ah answered the general and how does he conduct himself satisfactorily for the time being your excellency satisfactorily the general nodded and left the jail in a couple of minutes more the convicts were dazzled and disappointed and did not know what to be at as to laying complaints against the major that was quite over could not be thought of he had no doubt been quite well assured as to this beforehand End of chapter 5 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine